to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Data has become such an essential part of the world and doing business that if you aren't actively collecting your own first-party data and then utilising third-party data alongside it, you are really at a massive disadvantage, especially considering that your competitors and partners are making very good use of it. As such, those working in rights holders where it's often hard to differentiate your sponsorship offering and positioning, particularly in a crowded market, not only is data powerful and essential, it may just be your biggest differentiator. Clearly, big brands and their agencies are using data first and third party, and you really aren't keeping up with best practice if it isn't an essential part of your proposals, your execution, and then your reporting. I'm Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 80 of Inside Sponsorship. It's great to have you listening in to what is not just a mission-critical topic, but really a fascinating one as well. I have a shout-out, which for regular listeners of the show know that makes me very happy because I love hearing from you, even if it's just to say, hi, I listen to the show and I work at XYZ. And that is exactly what Scott Taylor did when he connected with me on LinkedIn. And then he sent me a message and it said, I'm a new listener of Inside Sponsorship, currently going through the library. I work with many businesses and individuals in sponsorship here in New Zealand and a few in Australia as well. Great to hear from you, Scott. And I hope you're finding all the previous 79 episodes useful and that business is great at scottyt.com. One man who knows so much about the space of data and analytics and digital is Eddie Fitzgibbon, VP, Global Solutions at Forefront, the global sports agency, which for over 10 years, Forefront have been helping their client partners hone their skills and create new services, rewrite the rules and like just knock it out of the park. Their core solutions not only work, they actually work together and it is a mighty suite of services from analytics, digital and innovation and through to partnerships, all designed to reveal new revenue possibilities and take their clients' existing streams to the next level. Eddie brings some great experience to the table and I'm excited to have him on the show. He has a law degree as well as a sports administration degree and he's worked across a lot of sports and globally, including rugby, cricket, anti-doping, major venues, Masters Games, Special Olympics and also worked for us here at CORE for some time. But... Before we hear from Eddie, Daniel Collier-Hill joins us to discuss his latest blog, which really does tee up our chat with Eddie later very, very nicely. And that blog looks at quantity versus quality, the fan segmentation debate in sponsorship. Here's Daniel. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show. You've just come back from a trip where you visited the core head office in the US. Tell us, how was the trip and and maybe some some highlights, both work-wise and socially? So aside from dealing with the jet lag now, uh, it was great. Uh, Work-wise, we had our team from around the world spending a few days going through various product updates and strategies. And socially, well, (laughs) to make other people jealous, we landed in New York just in time to watch the Super Bowl uh, and also got along to a few Knicks and Rangers games throughout the week. Very good. So last year on the Inside Sponsorship podcast, this podcast, I spoke with Ben Hartman, who is the Chief Client Officer at Octagon, and we focused on talking about award-winning trends in sponsorship. And although this largely is overlooked at the brand side of the deal, there was plenty of takeaways applicable to the rights titles space when we had a chat. But specifically, audience targeting and distribution strategy, you've blogged about it this time around because it's really piqued your interest, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's probably 
the really strong debate here is selling through audience data versus a super traditional sales model is still really divisive in the sponsorship industry. And I think whilst everyone will acknowledge that you know, best case scenario is a brand raising awareness to a certain audience, it's also how they engage and interact with the audience that is really starting to separate the good and the not so good. Um, and, and just on that point, I think it's fair to say that we broadly accept the idea of when we're building a sponsorship deal, it's being constructed with the primary purpose of helping a brand deliver a specific message to a specific audience that they otherwise don't have access to or, or can't access easily. So, I mean, traditionally speaking, we used to inherently believe that brands wanted the biggest possible return or, sorry, the, the biggest possible audience size to speak uh, or engage with. So, as a result, and, and I mean, we've all seen them, but there would just be tons of proposals and reports that just had big flashy numbers everywhere designed to simply promote the property as the biggest and the best option. So you say we we see and we have seen those big numbers and positioning that property as the best option. Are we seeing a shift this year, do you think, or will it be much of the same in terms of proposals and reports just having big numbers in them and almost using a big stick to say, hey, look how much we can help you access? I definitely think we're starting to see a shift, and I'm touching wood when I say that. But, you know, th this year already we're starting to see the quantity versus quality debate become more prevalent during discussions and negotiation of sponsorship deals. There, from our side, there seems to be a really genuine effort from rights holders to move away from presenting brands with the big numbers equal big value and more towards better numbers equals better value. So you say there's a genuine effort. Why is there a genuine effort now? Why is that shift starting to occur? The growth of this trend is, is probably somewhat thanks to now being able to solve the problem of mass duplication of fan and member data. And now we have a pretty unique view of that um, in our position at core, but it's systematically because membership and ticketing teams around the world are starting to conduct improved audience segmentation activities on clean data. And, and to be honest, whilst this might have initially been a fan profiling exercise, primarily to grow membership or ticketing-based revenue, sponsorship professionals are now able to jump on that proverbial bandwagon and, in, and enhance their targeting and retargeting efforts by really identifying detailed audience groups for brands to engage with. And just to give a really quick example, um, here in Australia, the North Queensland Cowboys are doing it amazingly well. So by engaging with and collecting new member profile data, the Cowboys went from having a handful of you know, really typical fan profiles uh, to being able to create in excess of 25 segment groups. And, and, a, and a quick side note to that, they didn't just create them out of thin air because, you know, it sounds cool to have 25. It was all based around specific behaviours and attributes that they could collect cleanly and then spin personalised content and offers back to the various groups. And sorry, that was probably a really long-winded answer to your question. But, you know, whilst this is happening, uh, well, this is happening because they've got better access to first and third-party data um, or data, as our Americans like to say. Uh, but that's, you know, social media attendance rates, valuation reports. There's lots there that rights holders can use and they're now able to start washing their, their fan profile data against a brand's avatars to create really targeted sponsorship campaigns. Uh, and if you haven't seen this, there's companies like Gemba, Greenroom Digital and Forefront uh, who are sort of really at the front of the line in helping rights holders develop strategies to take full advantage of all of that new and clean data. Well, it's interesting stuff. And in your blog at the end, you've provided some 
quick tips as people move forward with this. And as you said, we're, we're definitely seeing a change in proposals and sponsorship professionals approaching this area. So what are those quick takeaways for people moving forward in this space? Number one is focus on achieving clean data. Uh, I mean, any efforts towards having clean fan and membership data for the purpose of creating that single customer view will be a huge win for the entire business. If I'm in the listener's chair today, I would be exploring whether or not we're able to see attendance, membership, ticketing, or even merchandise purchasing trends, simply because this is going to allow you to start building out more comprehensive segments for marketing purposes. And of course, focusing on achieving clean data completely makes sense and and it really does set the foundation for what you're going to do with that data. So that's a great first tip. What's the second quick tip? Second is um, you know actually look at the fan profiles versus brand avatars. And, and I think this is an entire discussion in itself. But the tip here is to spend some time analysing those big numbers that we get before we put them into proposals or, or progress reports. Pull your membership and ticketing teams aside to explore the, the various fan profiles they're working on. I can't highlight this enough, but this is going to be a huge asset when it comes to identifying new sponsorship categories based on what and where your fans are. Yeah, I really like that one. Uh, what's the third one and, and the final tip as people move forward? I thought you might. I wonder what profile you'd fall under for Leeds and Parramatta. <laughs> um, look, there's the third one is to discover the right segments and customer journeys. Um, again, probably another full podcast in itself, but a lot of marketing teams uh, will have already done a, a stack of work around what their customer and fan journeys look like. And in most cases, if it's done right, um, this is actually going to mirror a well-thought-out sales process for the sponsorship team. If you've got a solid understanding of these journeys, it's going to allow you to understand exactly where, when, how a brand can enter that sort of fan or customer journey to present their message. Yeah, and I think that's really important because as sponsorship professionals, some people would know, but some people might not be exposed to this. But that's exactly what brands are doing. They're mapping out their customer journey, those touch points on way on their way to making a decision to buy from a brand or how they interact with a brand after they've purchased from them. So you coming in and aligning with the work that they've already done with mapping their buy journey is going to be really powerful and, and really important for the brand to help them make a sponsorship part of their marketing. So that's some excellent tips there, Daniel. Thank you. And listeners, if you'd like to go over that in slow time and read Daniel's blog, simply head to the resource section at coresoftware.com. So Daniel, you've been on a trip. You're still dealing with the, <laughs> the jet lag. Have you got any more trips planned, whether that's overseas or in Australia where people might be able to catch up with you and have a chat? Yeah, I do. And, and look, my wife doesn't know this yet. So hopefully she I get to talk to her before she listens to the podcast. <laughs> and I've got a bit of travel before we jet off on our honeymoon. It's looking pretty likely that um, we've got some travel inside Australia to Sydney, Adelaide and Perth uh, in the next coming weeks. Very good. Well, safe travels. And I hope the conversation goes well with the wife. Excellent. Uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks very much. Data has become such an essential part of the world in doing business that if you aren't actively collecting your own first-party data and then utilising third-party data alongside it as well, you really are at a massive disadvantage, especially considering that your competitors and partners are making very good use of it. As such, for those working in rights holders where it's often hard to differentiate your sponsorship offerings and positioning, particularly in a crowded market, 
not only is data powerful and essential, it may just be your biggest differentiator. One man who knows so much about the space is Eddie Fitzgibbon, VP, Global Solutions at Forefront, the global sports agency who, for over 10 years, Forefront have been helping their client partners across analytics, digital innovation, and of course, partnerships. And Eddie brings some great experience to the table, and I'm genuinely excited to have him on the show. He has a law degree as well as a sports admin degree, and he's worked across a range of sports and and globally as well, including rugby, cricket, anti-doping, major venues, Masters Games, Special Olympics, and of course, he also worked for us here at CORE for some time. So that's what made Eddie the perfect person to invite onto the show and share some amazing insights and advice into data analytics and digital marketing. Here's Eddie. Eddie, welcome to the show. We always start with a few icebreaker questions just to get the show started and for the listeners just to get to know Eddie Fitzgibbon a little bit. And I'm I'm looking forward to this icebreaker question because in Australia, there's a fair bit of what we might call regional competitiveness. So your first icebreaker question is, you were born in Tasmania, Australia, but you grew up in the capital of Australia, which is Canberra, and you've lived in Sydney, the biggest city in Australia. I want to know which one has the best lifestyle, which one has the best wine, and which one has the best memories for you. And I, I want an answer for all three of those categories. Oh wow, that's a that's a tough one. That's kind of like asking who my favourite uh, sports team is out of Collingwood, Liverpool, the Hobart Hurricanes, or the New York Jets. Well, whichever one's winning the most at the time, generally, yes. Yeah, that's true. Well, I might go with Liverpool at the moment. We're doing uh, we're doing quite well in the league, but. Um, yeah, look, I'd have to say when I was born in Tassie and um, I've been back there uh, quite often since I've been an expat and I'm going to have to go with wine for Tassie. It's a great cold climate, uh, wine down there. I love my Pinots, I love some sparkling and I've actually started a little uh, a little cellar down there at my, uh, at my parents' place, primarily in Tassie wine. So that's a reasonably easy one, I think. I think Sydney for lifestyle, I was uh, living in Coogee, uh, right near Coogee Beach there for about six years and just the ability to go down the beach and have a swim when it was you know, 40 degrees outside after work when it was summer was just uh, couldn't really get any better than that. So that kind of falls to, to Canberra, I think, for uh, the best memories. And you know, I spent probably most of my life there growing up. Um, so I met my wife there. My, all my mates are from there, although they've all moved you know, up to Brisbane and various other places since there and access to the outdoors as well. So I think I've, I've got a pretty well-rounded answer on, on all three there. A real politician's answer where every venue got a tick for something. So well done. Second <laughs> icebreaker question. You lived in New York and started an Aussies in Sport networking group. Why did you feel the need to start that group? What's it all about? And, and I'm keen to know how many people are a part of that group now. Just take a step back first. I, was, I lived in Dubai for five years um, before I made the, the journey over to New York City, and I was working in cricket at the International Cricket Council in Dubai. So when I moved to New York, obviously cricket is not a big deal over there at all. And coupled with the fact that I was, you know, had a university degree out of out of Canberra, meant it was really difficult for me to kind of get into the to, to the marketplace for, for employment. So I was just networking like a demon, just flying all around the US, meeting with people. But in New York, I found a lot of Aussies who were working in sport, whether it be at the New York Islanders or the Jets or the US Open. And I was just going out and having drinks with those guys. And then I thought, why don't we bring this all together and, and, and make it a bit of a group? So that's how I kind of got, got started on it. Um, it's about 30 people or so now. Sadly, I've left uh, New York and I'm, I'm currently residing in Denver. But 
a really good friend of mine, Amanda Wright, who works at the US Open, is a is, is a great um, great great friend of mine. Used to work uh, at, at Collingwood as well, so she's kept it going, and she's actually growing it uh, more quickly than than I ever did. So kudos to her. Outstanding. And if you are an Australian living in New York and you want to get involved in that group, just reach out to Eddie or reach out to myself and I'll put you in touch with Eddie and you can get along to one of those events because I'm sure they would be great fun. Now, Eddie, you're the VP Global Solutions at Forefront. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the work Forefront focuses on and what your role as VP Global Solutions is all about? What role do you play in all of that? Forefront is a, a sports marketing agency that focuses on analytics, innovation, partnership sales, digital, and more recently, stadia technologies. My role as global solutions is a really, really new role, and that's kind of it's kind of come about because Forefront have some really uh, interesting clients and an international perspective, which but the largest of which would be uh, the Big Bash and, and, and the Women's Big Bash, so very relevant to our Australian audience. And a lot of the international clients or partners that we work with just kind of come through osmosis and kind of word of mouth. So they really wanted to put a stake in the ground and really go after a lot more global property. So that's where I kind of come in with my knowledge of, you know, cricket, uh, European football, rugby. Uh, they're, they're primarily Americans over here working at Forefront who have a grasp on some of those sports, but not an, an in-depth knowledge. So, yeah, my role is kind of a... Um, you know, expert, solutions expert in, in, in those sports and also kind of the business development side of things as well. As the listeners heard in the intro to the show, we have you on today to talk about analytics and, and data. It's an area that everyone in sponsorship has to deal with and fan data has really come to the fore in recent years. And some people, like anything that comes to the fore, some people struggle to grasp it and move forward with it early on. How do you go about fan data analysis? What, what's your methodology? It's a really interesting space and there are quite a lot of providers out there who all have their different types of methodologies, all, all these different types of secret sources, I suppose. Some use survey-based data and then extrapolate those results to tell the story of an overall fan base. Some use you know, social or digital impressions, some a mixture of the two. Forefront, we use more of the kind of on the digital side of things as our methodology, and that is by kind of using people's actual online behaviours. So, for example, we will use third-party data such as census-verified demographics, online browsing behaviours, past purchase history, point of interest, visitations, those type of things. And then we overlay that with ingested first-party data from the rights holders to device-level views of the fans that can be then segmented by demographics psychographics and behavioural attitudes. And this helps uncover insights and drive media targeting strategies. From this, we can uh, gather a really deep understanding on things such as shopping, dining, travel preferences, top interests and priorities, and and even uh, likely upcoming purchase behaviours and and Myers-Briggs personality traits. You said there's a few people out there, we all know it, they've all got their secret source, they've all got their methodology, ours is the best, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say a rights holder follows your methodology, which is pulling together all those different things. Why is that methodology important when, say, a rights holder is in front of a brand and they're presenting a sponsorship proposal or a pitch to them? How important is it that that methodology sits front and centre of what they're talking about? Put simply... We like to say that your online behaviour is the best possible indicator of your actionable insights. So 
better they start as, as great and can sometimes be a reflection of your best self and, and not sometimes indicative of who, who you are. And, you know, you look at some of the recent political polls recently versus the actual results and you can kind of see that that can be the case sometimes. So for rights holders, you know, this should give you confidence that when you're pitching to new partners or even renewing existing ones, you actually have real life data on your fans that hopefully show you know, that you and your partner um, do indeed have affinities or the same interests as your, as your fan base. So you, know, you can use this, for example, to summarise key storing, telling insights for sales pitches. You can compare audience sub-segments, sub so, you know, mums or families or never-evers, and you can go deep on audience categories of both. So because the online behaviours give you an unlimited fan audience without geographic boundaries based on an in-market interest visitation, past purchase-based insights, it can really be exceedingly powerful story to tell those brands. And so analytics are very important because they let us make fact-based decisions and answer questions with hard data, all those things that you were just talking about there. With sponsorship in mind, what do you think are the questions that sponsorship professionals can best answer by really looking deeply at or actually relying on analytics or at least in some part using them? What are some of those best questions that sponsorship professionals can answer? The key here is being able to point to specific behaviours and insights of a rights holders fan, fans that do align with the partner. So you have to put yourselves in the shoes of the brand sometimes when you're pitching a potential sponsorship or, again, a renewal. So... Ask yourself, why would I partner with this rights holder when there are hundreds of other brands who are also pitching to me? Well, if you can say, for example, that based on our data, an ACT Brumbies fan, for example, has an affinity with Jeep that is 3.4 times higher than the general public. And not only that, there are 180,000 Brumbies fans that are actively looking to buy a new four-wheel drive in the next 18 months. And furthermore, there's 35,000 who are actively looking at a new Jeep in the next 18 months then that is just a no-brainer for the brand. And then the brand can easily use that to justify the spend with the rights holder. Mm, I like that application. There's a lot of emphasis on organisations treating people's data properly. There's been some high-profile cases in recent years. In the sports space, I'm curious about whether does first-party fan data need to be treated any differently or with any more care than, say, how a business in a different industry needs to treat their first-party customer data? Look, just to be clear on, on firstly what on first-party data is, that's the, the data the property has um, that they're collecting on the fans, or you could call them consumers, but we call them fans in, in sport, obviously, directly from those fans. So these could be in-person events, uh, surveys, digital sweepstakes, point-of-sales programs, newsletter subscriptions. In, in the sports space, you really do need to make sure you get explicit consent from your fans to collect and, and use this data. And, you know, as we've seen, there are recent boards that are cracking down on the misgathering of first-party data. So you must be really careful in the sports space of how you're obtaining it and how, indeed, you're using it. Sports team need to be careful here not just to abuse the trust of the fans that is, that is being given voluntarily by those fans, and, and that's the key. Um, the beauty of sports and teams in particular is that fans have a great passion and love for the team generally. And it's probably not top of mind that their data is being used by those teams to monetize them. And really, nor should it. It should be used um, to provide customized experiences, often better interactions with the team. And then if the team can monetize off that data, then it's a win-win really for, 
for both sides. So rights holders generally um, love a pretty long leash when it comes to data usage because of that um, fan interaction and love for the team. But with the public becoming more and more aware of being exploited with their individual data, if that trust is broken, then it can certainly damage the property. So it's a, it's a really interesting area, but um, teams do need to be very, very careful too. Now, this next question is a bit of a, a, well, it's a very leading question, and I think I have a good grasp on the area. Well, I like to tell myself I do, but we're here to hear your opinion. So while it might seem a little bit of a superficial question or a leading question, I'm, I'm really keen to get your views from where you sit in the industry because in the past, we never really had access to great first-party fan data. It was maybe, even if we were collecting it, it was all over the shop in terms of where it sat in the organisation, who controlled it, who was collecting it, who had access to it. So today, how important really is that first-party data for teams? Because as you mentioned before, we can pull data from lots of different sources, but that first-party data that teams are collecting themselves, how important is it? Because the rights holders and especially the sponsorship and commercial teams are probably going to want to be accessing it, right? It's super, super important. And that goes to the, you know, the question before about making sure that you're on good terms with your fans and you're not abusing it. I mean, rights holders, teams, they're in enviable position due to the love of the fans for the team. And so those fans are much more likely to hand over data and not ask questions than they would just say a bank or a random salesperson that picks up the phone and, and, and wants to sell you a used car. So teams can use this information in so many different ways. So, you know, to better understand who their fans are, and that can lead to you know, improved fan experiences, more tailored content, and better marketing strategies, personalised ticket offers, more authentic brand partnerships, and better sponsorship activation platforms, and you can go on and on and on. First-party data is, you know, it's, it's truly a goldmine, and, and properties are missing out on a huge opportunity to build a deeper connection with their fans and generate incremental revenue if they are not using it. So you're right, and it's a leading question, and, 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 and the answer is, um, of course, 100% uh, true, but it's then what you do with that data to enhance the fans' experience and get them to love the team even more, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for um, monetization down the road. Well, it's a great segue into my next question because clearly you're going to speak about some of those meta things. We can do this better. We can enhance that more. We can increase this. But I'm curious about when and how Forefront go into an organisation, a rights holder, and, and you start tapping into and, and working with that first-party fan data that they've been collecting, how do you get the most out of it? I, I'm keen to hear some specific examples of what sort of cool things you can do or, or tell a rights holder or some insights that you can give that maybe they don't realise that they can actually access or, or understand with that first-party data that they have been collecting. So with the first-party data from, from our partners, we get that, and we don't get it all the time, but um, we, we, we do ask our partners to you know, give us access to that um, in order to be, have a better experience for, for both them and their fans. But what we do is then enrich that first-party data with the aforementioned uh, third-party data attributes. So the third-party data attributes give a lot more information on behavioural and lifestyle element of those fans. So we can then form, using the first and third-party data to you know, form a 360-degree profile to understand more about the personas and give really actionable insights to the teams on how they should use that data and how they can essentially monetize their fan base. So this can help the sponsorship team to identify opportunities that 
for example, are not particularly obvious. So usually a sponsorship team is going to be relatively small, unless you're a huge property, maybe like the Dallas Cowboys, let's say five people. And those guys just don't have the bandwidth to prospect for every single industry or every single brand. So by marrying first and third party data, it helps them identify what brands are already um, uh, thinking, uh, sorry, what fans are already thinking about brands, um, what they're already familiar with, what categories they're already purchasing things in, where, and obviously where they live um, and what is in close proximity wise to them. And then we can then tell the story based upon what those analytics and first and third party data um, tells us. So finally, just from a kind of practical point of view, um, teams are also more likely to click through on, on, on those properties and send digital communication or, again, trust the team they love and sell them more relevant information. And the key there is, is trust. So is it fair to say that that third-party data that you marry up with the first-party data really does either, or it might be an, an and proposition, confirms what the rights holder is, is thinking about their audience or understands about their audience all that third-party data starts to fill in the gap so that they get a much more complete picture yes that's that's exactly right so the third-party data um provides a much more overarching level of information about what what the fan looks like and then once you ingest that first-party data you start to see more granular information about demographic information about uh, where they live how they live and then obviously you can um market directly to those um, people because you have their email addresses or their addresses themselves. So really, you can't really have one without the other. We Again, we do have some, some partners where we only use third-party data. Um, we can still pull in insights and, and information from that, but marrying it with the first-party data and being able to um, then deliver messages directly to those people is, is, is critical. Let's shift gears a little into digital as a marketer, I know what digital marketing is, but what is your opinion? Does digital marketing in sports really differ that much or does it take on more importance than maybe, say, in other industries? Digital is a, it's a big word. It's been bandied around a lot um, these days in all sorts of industries, including sport. Um, so what I would like to kind of focus on on here in the digital space is, um, is how to increase revenues using digital rather than focus on likes or impressions or all those or all those type of things. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a hugely important part of getting the fans excited and engaged about their team. But ultimately, what we need to be doing as sports, sports marketers is be driving these engaged fans and monetizing them. I mean, that's our, that's our job after all. So this example can be things like laser-targeted advertising through mobile devices or mobile out-of-home billboards, for example. So... The ultimate goal here for rights holders using digital and what we help to do here is, you know, for example, selling tickets or memberships to directly increase revenue using digital. Using digital to drive tune-in, that is, you know, to drive people to view their team's games, therefore helping drive up media rights deals for the league, which then filters back to the team, but also adds value to the team's sponsors and drive direct merchandise sales through, through digital. So... Digital can also help um, teams use their brand to help other brands build the sponsorship packages through digital to extend their audience. And this is a really cool, really um, new, interesting, relatively newish form of advertising, which is called digital out of home. 
Well, that's what I wanted to ask about next because there's a lot of acronyms in marketing and OOH is one of them, as you said, out of home digital. For those that don't know, can you explain what digital OOH advertising is and and what relevance it has and how it works with sports? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're all pretty familiar with out of home advertising, messaging to consumers in public places, commuting to work, waiting in line, those type of things you know, on-car ads, bus, bus stop shelters, those type of things. So the whole point of Out of Home is, you know, it's one medium that you cannot avoid. It's, it's, it's always in your face unless you stay at home 24-7. So take that one step further. There is probably a lot of waste in Out of Home, um, a lot of ads, messages that you don't need to see. So the idea of digital Out of Home is what if you could marry your data on where your audience is at certain times of day and pay only at the value that you should be having to pay? Now, incredibly powerful for brands. Everyone sees those digital billboards in the drive home at the bar or at the grocery station, but those ads can now be bought programmatically in-house. So what we do is we run digital media where we can, where we have um, hands-on keyboard and we're in total control of what we're doing. So we've created a platform where you can get it out of home. So the team's audiences are seeing ads on the right out-of-home billboard when they are going about their day. We're able to heat map where they are throughout the course of the day to make sure that we are actually reaching them. So behind that, there's a lot of really cool data out there that we can use to then do reporting on when that ad is being served and then overlay it with that heat map. So essentially, digital out of home is, is, is basically out of home powered up by ad tech. So such things as geofencing, tracking, retargeting, personalizing, uh, measurement, those type of things. So. In a, in a nutshell, the, the idea of digital out of home is the one medium that you cannot avoid. It's always in your face, but it subliminally tells you what you want to know. And you can buy digital out of home boards programmatically to ensure you are targeting your audience at the right time and in the right place with the right messaging. As I said before, I'm a marketer. A lot of my background and, and qualifications are in marketing. And a lot of people will say to me when I talk to them about that targeted advertising, like you just explained. They'll say to me things like, wow, isn't that creepy to do that? I don't like that. I've got a response for people, but I'm, I'm interested in what your response is when people say, geez, isn't that a bit creepy? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it is, but it's a reality that we're kind of living in nowadays unless you, 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 you don't have a mobile, mobile cell phone, right? Um, and at the end of the day, you are going to see ads. So wouldn't you rather see ads that interest you instead of ads that have no relevance to you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I do. I mean, as an example, I don't need an ad to say incontinence pants yet, but <laughs> I sure do want to know about the new golf driver released from Ping, right? So by making sure that we have the right people are seeing those right ads um, and, 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 and they're seeing in the right spot, I mean, that's kind of the future of, of, of advertising and, and, and marketing. So, I'm off to you know, buy my new ping driver and I think the pants can wait another 20 or so years. <laughs> well, it's good I, because that's the answer I essentially give people. Why wouldn't you want – you're going to be exposed to advertising anyway. Why wouldn't you want it targeted to things that you would be interested in? So I wanted to ask a question about fan network campaigns, but for those who might only just be hearing that term for the first time, we better cover off what it means. What is a fan network campaign? What does it mean? Fan Network's really, I'm really excited about, about the uh, application of this. So it's essentially the extension of a corporate partnership by digitally targeting all of your fans with ads. So 
It takes the, the rightholders fan base as the foundation and, to, and it serves ads online as they engage with digital content. So, for example, at a, at a game day activation, you might have 20,000 people attending your, your venue. Um, you get 12 exposures for that brand around the venue, whether it be uh, outside activations, um, LED screens, whatever that looks like. So let's say that's 240,000 impressions for the brand. A post-game digital activation, meanwhile, you have 1.3 million devices of the people that are watching the game or, or, or following the team in the fan network, and say you only get five exposures. That's you know, six and a half million impressions. So all of a sudden, that's, that, that's huge scale compared to the actual game day activation. So the benefits really for a rights holder are it's incremental revenue, um, there's unlimited inventory, which is huge, and it's a great value um, add offering to your partner. And then for a brand, it's an opportunity to reach your fan base with co-branded assets. It's a seamless integration with the property. It's scalable year-round engagement, which is absolutely key, rather than just the you know the ten or so home games that you have every 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 year. And there's incremental brand awareness and/or conversion. So um, I mean, when you when you think about it, it's kind of a no-brainer for both brands and rights holders to be really diving into this stuff. Well, why is that? Why is it such an easy win for sports teams? Say you're, and I'm going to go with my New York Jets. I don't get, get much love, but I'm going to go with them at the moment. <laughs> and you've got a major sponsor. Uh, let's say it's a bank. And you get those three hours of live game time to have somebody in the stands that is a fan. And you know they're a fan as they bought a ticket and they see your advertisement. Fan network is simply an extension of that, as I said. It's reaching the fans of the NFL team, marrying their IP with that of the brand, again, the bank, that they are trying to support. And what you are doing is putting it out in the universe to people that you know are interested in the team, but also have a need for a new bank. Maybe they got married, maybe they moved states. So you can then marry that third-party data to make sure that you're reaching the right audience with the co-branded message saying that this team supports this bank and you should too. So it sounds as though it's something that everyone should be looking at, obviously, if you're at the right size and scale. So does having a fan network in your arsenal actually help sell more sponsorships since the brand is not just relegated to, say, you know, maybe those 80,000 fans inside the stadium or or something around that? But they're also seen, obviously, throughout the digital world and co-branded with the team. How does that help the partnerships team? How do they position that? How do they build a vision of how that's going to help a brand? As I mentioned before, um, another the same term we use fan network is kind of audience extension. So you are just literally extending your reach with that audience. So the CPM, the brand pays to have a banner in a stadium, a high, because you're paying that value at the, of that team time. What if you would pay a much, much lower CPM and continue to extend that connection that you have already made within the stand. So essentially, we want to understand the brand that the team is working with. Then we want to understand the fan network and where the intersection between both the people and the market for the brand is so they can engage with the brand through the team. Then that's ensuring, then we ensure that the side of the audience, size of the audience is big enough so we have enough people to hit with the message and that we are picking the right creative and hitting them at the right time at the right place to make the biggest splash to hit them with the correct message. Sounds like a a silly question to ask now in my list that I've prepared for you, but 
and it's probably another leading question, but how much, considering all of that, does defining the fan through those analytics play a part in, in, in digital? How You probably can't do it without it, right? No, exactly. Everything we do on the digital side of things begins and ends with analytics, as it should. So we are defining our audience, audience size, and which media tactics make the most sense using our analytics platform to determine those audiences. So all of our, you know, our geniuses on, 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 on the back end here, um, they're optimising a campaign, they're writing wrap-ups, thinking things that we should have been doing differently. All of that, um, we're looking through the lens of our analytics team's dashboard that they have created for us that allows us to look at all channels holistically at one time, being able to change and adapt um, as that data comes through. So, yeah, as you said, essentially every decision that, that we make in that space is data-driven. And so if a rights holder starts with the data, maybe they're collecting data already or maybe they haven't been so good at it and they're, they're listening to you talk and they think there's some great opportunities here, I really need to get on top of collecting that fan data. How do they start that in terms of identifying any special data points that particularly sponsorship teams really need to ensure that they are capturing because that then helps them with obviously defining the fan but then executing the campaigns and and as you alluded to there then reporting on those fan networks for sponsors again and we spoke this quite a bit but it's worth repeating and first party data is is that gold mine that properties are missing out on a huge opportunity to build a deeper connection with the fans and generate the incremental revenue um, as they as they get more deep into that. As much you know, as much first party data as possible for for the property is key. So, I mean, if used correctly, teams can use this information to better understand their fans. Again, lead to better improved fan experiences, more tailored content and marketing strategies, the ticket offers offers all of that great stuff. So, you know, we how we use data is we get that first party data from our partners and then we enrich it with the third party data. And it gives us all that information on behavioural and lifestyle elements of those fans. Then we can either form segmentation um, through the through third party and first party data to understand and tell a story on the types of fans that a particular property has, or we can use that first party data to be to, you know to be sending specified um, direct messages. So it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve as a property, whether it be fan network or whether it be understanding what type of brands we should be going out and, and, and prospecting. Um, but it all does start kind of with that gold mine of the first-party data. Just to underline the importance of that first-party fan data and knowing that rights holders can find it hard to differentiate what they're offering, particularly if they operate in a, in a crowded market, would you agree that first-party fan data really is the biggest differentiator that sponsorship teams can can bring to the table when they're discussing sponsorship with brands? Yes, I do. Um, at the same time, it's, it's certainly in an interesting place right now in the, in, in the first-party data space with the introduction of GDPR in the UK and, and Europe and more recently you know, the implementation of a similar law in California. So ultimately, um, it's, it's critical, as I've mentioned, but you do need to have ex- explicit content from your fans to collect and use this data. Um, and these recent laws tracking down on the misgathering first-party data means you need to be really extremely careful about how you're obtaining it and using it. Uh, there's this, this trend on mass data gather recently and um, from not just sports, but you know everywhere that we interact with the world from a commercial point of view. 
and it's a hugely important currency. With these recent changes, the business world, and not just sports teams, they need to be really careful with the data collection and make sure the data is used to personalise experiences or send messages, not just bulk collection. So if it's not done the right way, you, you really shouldn't be collecting the data at all um, due to the added scrutiny that there now is um, in, this, in, in this area. And I think it's only going to get more and more. Clearly, as you said, data has become a very important currency for organisations in, in all industries right across the world. And we've seen changes in legislation and we've seen changes in people's attitudes. However, the world is still working through how best to collect it and manage it and treat it and protect it and analyse it and then apply that to, in a business sense. I'm curious about what sort of trends or directions do you see the, the data space taking? teams um, and, and properties generally are maybe on the back end of this huge wave of kind of data collection. I know, you know, you, you can read some pretty scary stuff and to get into weeds on that about, you know, um, businesses and, and corporations collecting data. Um, but I think sports uh, teams and, and properties are, are, are probably a little bit immature in that space right now. And uh, hopefully uh, after people listen to this podcast, they can start to understand how, how critically important it is. So I see the trend on an upswing for first-party data gather and using that data to inform sponsorship, to inform ticket sales, to inform all sorts of areas of sports sports marketing. Um, I think the next you know, maybe two to three years will be really critical for that. But then again, once we start to pull in the GDPR um, regulations, that might fully change again. I think that, that, that um, law hasn't really been felt too much in sports teams and leagues right now, but particularly in Australia and, and the US. I know in the UK it's, it's, it's becoming quite a thing, but to, now to see what happens after the implementation of that is really anyone's guess. What I would say right now to you know, properties or, or rights holders out there is use this time right now to understand who your fan is um, from first-party data point of view but then overlay that with third-party data like we've discussed um, to really get a really granular um, idea on who your fan is, but also to start segmenting who your fan is so you can approach sponsors with a lot more uh, confidence that you can approach them and pitch them based upon data, but also being able to um, send them messages, send them digital advertising to help drive ticket sales and, and, and drive awareness in your property as well. So... I think it's a huge part of the part of business and sports, but it's still you know, very much in its infancy. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it, how it develops. Eddie, I 100% agree, and that's been a great chat. If people want to find out more about Forefront and the work that you do and continue the conversation, what can they do? Where can they head? If you want to hit me, probably best on uh, LinkedIn, just uh, Edward Fitzgibbon, also Eddie at teamforefront.com, and we're uh, teamforefront.com on the, uh, on the interwebs. Or you could, of course, come see me uh, in beautiful Denver. I moved there uh, only six months ago. It's the microbrewery capital of America. Some fantastic beer there. The Rocky Mountains are an hour and a half away. Some great skiing. There's a lot of Australians there. They've got the, the Denver Bulldogs AFL team out there. I've had a couple of beers with those guys. So don't be strange if you're forever in, uh, in Denver to give me a shout as well. And I'd love Love to buy your beer. Excellent. I'm looking up flights right now. Eddie Fitzgibbon, VP Global Solutions at Forefront. Thank you so much for finding some time in your busy schedule and taking us inside analytics and digital in sports sponsorship. Pleasure, Daniel. Thanks. That's a wrap for episode 80. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you enjoyed and got lots of value out of the chat with Eddie. 
clearly it isn't an area that you can ignore anymore or even just half-heartedly engage with. And it really does provide an excellent opportunity for sponsorship or commercial teams to work with those other business areas in your organization in terms of agreeing what data should be being collected and then how to analyze it and then applying those insights right across the business and then out to your partners as well. If you'd like to connect with Eddie, just search for Eddie Fitzgibbon on LinkedIn or head to teamforefront.com. That's team, the number four, and front. Com. Or if you're an Australian working in sport in New York, or maybe you know someone who is, be sure to let them know about the Aussies in Sport Networking Group. Of course, I've provided links to all that important stuff in the show notes at coresoftware.com. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston, O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you do, I'll make sure I give you a shout out just like I did for Scott Taylor from Scotty T in New Zealand. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial manager for Australasia, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, at coresoftware.com, or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.